This is Overnight. You are with Rod Quinn. It is time to cross the United States. And Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest. Celeste, lovely to talk to you again. Hello. Good morning. Welcome back. I've got some breaking news on the cricket, if you want to hear it. I do. Uh, Nepal are playing Mongolia. Now, it's always a barn burner when those two get together. Um, Nepal made three for 314 and Mongolia all out uh, for 41. So that's a bit of a lopsided result, but I thought you were interested in it, which is why I mentioned it. Um, Look, there's a lot happening, Celeste, and one of them is this ongoing story which has not been played out in any way about this American soldier who, I don't know, did he try to defect to... North Korea? This is how the BBC reported it now. Travis King has now left the People's Republic of China. He's now at a a US military airbase. We can tell you that the Swedish government was involved in negotiating his release or expulsion, as the North Koreans have put it, and that the American government has thanked both Sweden and the PRC for assisting in that, because we know now that he was transferred with Swedish help across the border into China and met by US officials there, by the sound of it, which is extraordinary, and flown out from China uh, to a, a US military base. All right, so let's just take us back to how this all started. So this soldier, Travis King, was stationed in South Korea, and he had gotten into some sort of disciplinary trouble, I think, uh, basically got into some sort of a fight or an argument um, while he was stationed in South Korea, and he was supposed to be sent back to the United States. So they dropped him off at the airport. But instead of getting on the plane, he somehow made his way to the North Korea, South Korea border and got into a tour group there. And when they got to the DMZ, he suddenly booked out of the group and ran across the border into North Korea and uh, was taken away and had not been uh, seen or heard from uh, since. This is back over the summer in July. So now he has actually just arrived after uh, detention or stay, whatever you want to call it. I think he was being held there and interrogated. as you just described, uh, through diplomatic channels, was able to get back into um, U.S. custody and has just arrived in back in the United States in Texas. So is he still in the U.S. Army? Is he going to leave? I mean, at some point, I suppose we are going to hear an interview with him about what happened. I mean, as we discussed at the time, it's very difficult to join a tour group to go to the the DMZ, as they like to call it as well, the DMZ, Demilitarized Zone, between North and South Korea. It's a very heavily fortified, difficult to get on the tour. So the fact that he kind of slipped into that tour group in the last minute, I find highly suspicious. And then um, why did North Korea let him go? I mean, they didn't want him. Is that it? Yeah, basically they had finished interrogating him and investigating why he was there. They put out some public remarks, which uh, I don't think we can say we know with certainty actually came from him, but basically saying that he had told North Korean authorities that he was not happy with the United States because of uh, racial discrimination and things like that. And uh, that's why he got out of there. Uh, His family has said that he might have been under some uh, mental and emotional strain. So 
that could have played a part in it. But again, this is all sort of secondhand stuff. But uh, as to what will happen to him, I mean, of course, we don't know for sure. I've seen some people saying that, I mean, he was already subject to disciplinary measures for what happened when he was in South Korea. So will he be discharged from the service? Uh, That's, of course, it's a possibility. I think right now what they're saying is that they're focused on getting him treatment that the military would provide basically for people who have been uh, subject to extreme stress and trauma or even prisoners of war. I would think the way to stop him talking is to keep him in the military, surely. If he is still a serving member of the US Army, then the Army would be able to have some kind of restriction on what he can say or who can he can talk to, like the media. I, w- I would think so. I mean, once he's sort of a private citizen again, I don't, and again, I, I don't know for sure if the, if the military would have sort of the equivalent of a civilian NDA, non-disclosure agreement or something like that, but they certainly have much, much less chance of controlling what he says and where he goes and what he does if he is just a private citizen again. The good news about this, surely, okay, he's away from North Korea, fair enough, that's a good thing, but also it means that This standoff between the US or the West and North Korea, you know, sometimes it doesn't have to be as belligerent as we are sometimes told. Yes, we heard that the Swedes were involved, and quite often it's the Swiss or the Swedes that do this kind of diplomacy with states that don't want to talk to the United States. But that's a good thing, isn't it? A good sign that maybe a little bit of diplomacy works every now and then. Right. I think it definitely is. And particularly at this time, we've seen a lot of missile testing. We've heard some pretty harsh rhetoric. There's been this whole issue of uh, North Korea being in talks and even having personal visits between their leaders uh, with Russia and what's going on there in terms of uh, potentially supplying armaments and so on for the um, uh, the conflict with Ukraine. So uh, I think this is at least one moment Uh, maybe a tiny moment, but one moment where people were actually able to sort of cool their jets and have a discussion and say, look, let's let's resolve this uh, at at the bargaining table. You know, it's it's coincidental, is it, that it happens around about the same time that Kim Kim Jong-un goes to meet Vladimir Putin? Is it a sign? Maybe it's a sign. I mean, I don't think, I certainly don't think that the the Russians want the Americans any more involved in Ukraine than they already are. Um, the Americans don't want the Chinese involved in that any more than they are, or the North Koreans any more than they are. So um, I don't know if this is sort of an attempt to separate that out and say, uh, we can still talk about other things. Not all is lost. Um, it, it's not a kumbaya moment, I don't think, uh, on a grand scale. But uh, is it a small measure of people being able to have a cool-headed conversation resolve something? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think that can only be good news. I'd love to hear from this bloke. But, I mean, again, we don't know. We don't know what they asked him. We don't know, well, you know, what happened to him when he was over there. And, I mean, really, if you attempt to defect, which is maybe what he was doing, what's the punishment in the United States? I mean, could he be locked up for this? Well, I don't, I mean, I suppose if he was court-martialed, and the military has somewhat different uh, uh, regulations and codes that apply to them. There's a uniform code of military justice. They have their own attorneys. They have their own court system. Um, So uh, is it a treason charge? Uh, 
I don't I don't know. I'm not as much of a um, enough of an expert on on military justice to say. But at the very least, the, the guy is out of there. Uh, whatever he may have told them or was actively telling them, I guess that has at least been cut off as a, a channel. Yeah. And that can only be a good thing. All right. So we wish him the best, but uh, we'll see what happens next. He went missing in action. Someone else who was missing in action is Donald Trump, or Donald Duck, as they're starting to call him, because he's ducked yet another uh, Republican um, nom- you know, Republican candidate debate. The point is, why would he even bother to turn up? Because he wants to, he's a former president. He wants to be seen above them. They're all sort of fighting for nothing, really, given that his you know, standing in the polls is miles ahead of everybody else. Yeah, I think this is this is really a classic case of, uh, at least when it comes to debates, at least when it comes to this moment in the larger campaign cycle of winning the war without firing a shot. There is no percentage, zero percentage in Donald Trump getting on a stage to be a punching bag for all of these candidates. And they obviously may have very, very legitimate complaints or concerns or questions for him, but he does not need to subject himself to that. He has used this tactic before, refusing to participate in debates, staying above the fray, quote unquote. But why expose himself to all of this? And frankly, if you had a chance to view even a snippet of what went on, um, it was beyond not useful. I think it was unbearable. And I say this as somebody who used to travel the country regularly um, covering these debates. That debate was held at the Reagan Presidential Library. I have covered debates at the Reagan Presidential Library with multiple candidates. I have not seen this level of discord and crosstalk and shouting. I just don't think it was in any way useful for anybody uh, who's either trying to decide which candidate they like or who already likes a candidate and wants to hear more from them to learn anything. Debate is a bit of a misnomer, though. It's not a debate at all. It's a series of stump speeches and then people attacking them. They're not actually debating issues, are they? I think that generally people try to use the debates as self-promotion. And look, it's it's a accepted tactic. And it's sometimes it's a very effective tactic. They ask you a question and you answer the question you want to answer. You say the thing you want people to hear you saying, or you take the time to deflect and redirect criticism at another person that you perceive as a threat or to create some sort of alliance to take on some other candidate. There's all sorts of tactics that go into Uh, These very brief, very packed televised debates with lots of people on the stage that have nothing at all to do with explaining to the American people where you stand on issues, why you are better than some other candidate, or why this matters to the overall process of choosing a new leader. Just no relationship at all. And I think that's very sad. I think that um, the television stations the television networks, radio networks, whatever it may be, even local forums really have to rethink the structure of how we do this. Because I do think that people deserve to hear a somewhat unfiltered uh, conversation between the candidates with real questioners and not just a bunch of ads and sycophants asking Mm. them the questions. But um, this isn't it. The thing is, though, that if they want to present themselves as a viable alternative to Donald Trump, then this is not the way to go about it. Surely they must realise themselves they need to be able to present 
themselves in the best possible light and they don't do that by constantly talking over other people or attacking other people and I know they try to look presidential but by having so many people and they're all talking at once they're all you know criticizing each other no one stands out and no one can be then seen as a viable alternative. It's it's embarrassing to them and to the party. And it, Trump himself said, oh, you know, they're all just basically campaigning to be, you know, secretary of something or other, um, you know, when he gets reelected. I think that, I, and I do think that a lot of times people tend to blame the moderators for losing control of the room. Uh, and to some degree, it is their job to enforce time limits to get people back on track when they wander away deliberately or not from the subject. But to some degree, it's just not going to work if you have that many people in that short of a time with that many important issues that you're trying to touch on. If you want to give seven or eight people equal time on 10 questions in a 90 minute or 60 minute debate you do the math yeah, it just doesn't work so they need to have, have one issue one issue or two issues choose one domestic and one international issue and say right these are the ones we're going to talk about and have somebody there i mean you might have to have them in a glass booth the you know the airless booth the, the soundproof booth you remember from old game shows and say right when it's not your time to talk, we are turning your microphone off. I think they tried that at a presidential debate. It didn't really work. Um, and then say, right, one person's going to talk at a time, and that's it. And when their time is up, cut them off. Right. And I think the last thing, and again, this is, does not necessarily make for good television, quote unquote, but I do think a major part of the disturbances and the egging people on and the time wasting has to do with the studio audience. I know yeah. that's a terrible thing to say, and it does not sound like it's in service of democracy, but we are there to hear the candidates, not to hear who has the loudest cheering section. Yeah. And these, no matter how many people they can pack into an auditorium, those televised debates are for people who are watching television, for people who can't be there, for people who have limited time, limited resources, can't travel to a debate, can't um, take the time to get involved with a, a campaign or the party structure or whatever it may be. And I really think that they would they would do a much greater service to many, many more people if they did these things without a studio audience. All right. Celeste Katzmaston is our guest in Boston and um, we go from one side of politics there to the other, and that's the Democrats. Joe Biden, he's not doing much better. I mean, we had a pretty terrible um, you know, trip to Europe. Uh, but now he's got on the picket line with striking car workers, United Auto Workers. Uh, is this, this sounds pretty unusual for a president to join striking workers. Yeah, he's actually the first president, uh, first American president, at least in, in modern times, to join a picket line, to go to a strike site in this way. And you can see why he would do it uh, strategically from lots of different angles. Number one, sort of auto workers in the United States are very emblematic of the working man. You see people... Um, constructing a car, working on an assembly line, wearing a hard hat. And that is a really strong visual. Um, certainly he wants to appear that he's he's very supportive of organized labor. Unions are very powerful in the United States. They can pull in a lot of votes. They can mobilize their whole families in addition to the workers themselves. They also have a lot of money um, to get involved in the political process. But he's also walking a very interesting fine line, specifically on automotive for a couple of reasons. Um, 
Number one, obviously, he was vice president to Barack Obama, who was uh, famously involved in uh, bailing out the auto industry. And secondly, he has put a lot of money and a lot of political capital into electric vehicles, into changing the way Americans drive and the way Americans make cars. And that may be great for the environment, but a lot of people are super skeptical of it because building electric cars doesn't require as many people. You just don't need as many workers, union or otherwise, to make more electric vehicles. So he is really doing kind of a balancing act here, trying to push something that is part of his platform to improve the environment and is part of his overall picture on climate. But at the same time, he really wants to be perceived and to, uh, to be physically out there with auto workers saying, I'm on your side. He's not going to have, you would think, uh, a challenger for the Democratic nomination in a year's time. He's going to get the endorsement of the UAW, yes, and he, it's, it's you know, they're standing up fighting for the working man. And all those things that you've talked about, is there anything else at play here? I mean, because, you know, Trump sees himself as the, the champion for the working man as well. Right. And I mean, ultimately, is is Joe Biden or Donald Trump really uh, how much they really have in common with the working man? You know, Joe Biden talks a lot about growing up in Scranton yeah. or not having very much money compared to Donald Trump, who certainly didn't have a, a working man's uh, childhood by by any means. But in reality, Joe Biden has been in government for uh, decades and decades and decades. Yes. He's held high positions. He's been a United States senator. He's been vice president. He's been president of the United States. I mean, is he really the average guy? Is, no. he, is Joe Biden really an average Joe? I kind of don't think so. But look, I think that we've seen in some recent elections that people and groups that you might think reliably would vote a certain way suddenly turns out they're not all that reliable. You know, maybe people are very sick of what's been happening with the economy under Joe Biden. And they're saying, look, things were better when Donald Trump was president. I had more money in my pocket. And, uh, you know, I gave Joe Biden a chance, my union or my uh, professional organization or my neighborhood, whatever, voted for Joe Biden. We gave him a shot. Things aren't that great. Maybe we were better off before. And they might vote for Donald Trump again. Who knows? I mean, they might, of course, look at Donald Trump's many, many, many legal problems or look at some of his positions on things like abortion or foreign relations and say, all right, this guy is not for me either. Maybe they'll just stay home. Yeah. And that's always the biggest question in an election, who actually gets out to vote and who stays home. Yeah, because last time it was a lot of people got out and voted because they wanted maybe to get rid of Donald Trump, but a lot of people got out and voted because they wanted Trump to stay. It was a huge result for both of them. And, yeah, that's going to be Biden's major problem is getting people out to vote for him next time in a year's time. Celeste is our guest in Boston. And uh, just point out, Greg says the U.S. soldier had pre-booked a tour to the DMZ months prior. There you go. And had been in detention in South Korea on assault charges. That's right. Uh, he was due to face disciplinary action and possibly a court-martial. Um, now the, they're going to charge him for being AWOL as well. U.S. Army won't be letting him go anywhere yet, says Greg. Thanks very much for that, Greg. Finally, you know, one of the things that we often hear about uh, when it comes to uh, slavery in the U.S. and how it should be dealt with now is reparations. And they're talking about that in Boston. The thing is, though, all those slaves are now long dead, um, how much money are we talking about and, and who would get any reparations and, and what's the project that's going on in Boston? 
Right. So right now they're doing a sort of a historical research project. They're doing uh, an examination of Boston's role in the slave trade as it was part a big role. Too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think a lot of people uh, certainly here in Massachusetts see us as sort of having this revolutionary spirit and being the cradle of the revolution. I'm speaking to you right now from Concord, Massachusetts, an actual cradle of the American Revolution. First shot, uh, the shot heard around the world. You may have heard that phrase. I'm sure you have. Um, And uh, people perceive themselves in that way and they don't think as much about uh, the states or the city of Boston's role in participating actively in the buying and selling of human beings. So I think that um, writ large, this research project is going to be looking at the role of the city in slavery and then looking out uh, how that rippled down through generations in the way um, people had uh, opportunity or lacked opportunity, how it may have affected them uh, economically, socially, uh, lots of different ways, financially, and then um, sort of figuring out what to do about it. If the, you know, the final question is how much money does each person get and who, how do you decide who gets it? Those are things that they're working out right now. Other places have uh, created reparations programs, um, some happier with them than others, of course, because in the end, how do you put a dollar figure on on yeah. slavery? How do you, how do you do that? It's, it's uh, pretty much almost impossible, but I think that in places like Boston, there is a sense that maybe we can't do everything, but we must do something to make this right. But how do you do it? You know, I, I find it, as much as it's a noble idea, it's very, very difficult to, you know, recompense someone who might be 300 years away from this, uh, where maybe one member of the family, others might have two, ten members of the family were slaves. Uh, it, I don't know how it happens. And, you know, I'd be interested to know how they do it elsewhere. And, you know, who's going to pay for it as well? Right. And and obviously that's that's going to be the calculation. And it sounds very cold, but at some point it, it ends up being a little bit like budgeting for anything else. How much money are you going to spend on it? And who's going to get the money? And then you do the division. Yeah. And then you've got to ask, well, what happens after that? I mean, that does not end racism. It doesn't make slavery better. Is it going to improve the relations between black and white Americans by paying these reparations? Because a lot of other people might suggest, well, hang on a minute. Uh, my family were in the Holocaust. Uh, who's going to recompense me? Or there may be other terrible things. Uh, Native Americans who have been the result of massacres, will they get rec- uh, you know, compensation or uh, anything like that, reparations? People right. talking about that. For sure. I mean, just as your, I mean, all your examples are perfectly valid. If you think about uh, Asian Americans, Japanese Americans being put in internment camps in the United States, um, including U.S. citizens yeah. during World War II. Yeah, that's only 70 uh, years ago. They could actually do something with either some of those people. George Takei, I think, was one of them from Star Trek, or their family members, direct family members. That is something they could do. But that's, that's right. you know, not that long ago. Right, right. So again, is there, there are two questions. I mean, is, is money, because how else, I mean, just saying you're sorry, I mean, or even if you want to go further, say affirmative action programs or something like that to try to correct these historical failures and uh, discrimination, mistreatment of people, but how much is enough? And I think the question becomes less of how much is enough because nothing will ever be enough. 
to make up for some exactly. of these terrible wrongs, but how much do we have to spend and how do we divide it up? Exactly right. Well, that's for people other than you and I to work out, Celeste. And I wish them the best in doing it. Celeste, thank you very much. I will sadly not be here when you're back next. I think Tim Webster will be with you. But I look forward to talking to you again in uh, a few weeks' time. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Celeste Katz-Marston in Concord, Massachusetts, the cradle of the revolution. We are one. We are to ABC Radio.